Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. Do you frequent the website Reddit? No. Okay, but you know what it is. <laughs> I know what it is. The only time I spend any time on Reddit is when one of my friends, one friend in particular, uh, his nickname is Crispy, he sends <laughs> me things to look at that are funny on Reddit. Right. Jokes or postings or something, but I don't willingly go out to Reddit. It's I just don't have the mental capacity for Reddit. I agree with you. So I also tend not to spend a lot of time on Reddit, if at all. It's not a social media, but it's it's kind of, it's a forum. It's where people live and exist. And then usually that there's some negative stuff that happens when people congregate online. But there is a subreddit called AITA. It stands for Am I the Butthole? But obviously, <laughs> the, the butt is something else. I think it has come across my radar before. Yeah, just a few times. I Again, I don't spend a lot of time on Reddit, but basically the premise of this group is that people post something that they did or something that happened to them and they ask like, am I in the wrong? Yeah. And obviously it's online posting. So take everything with a grain of salt. People could just be making things up for whatever's. But the number of posts that Everyone like everyone is like, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? like? They're just so oblivious to like the awful things that they did that it's hilarious, but in a very sad kind of way because they're not aware of like just how awful that their actions are. And then you know, two things from this: one is that I really want to know like how they were raised <laughs> and then just like what happened to them that led them to think that they could treat other people like this in a very manipulative way. To be fair, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, you're putting a lot on nurture. Like sometimes you can have really great parents who instill or attempt to instill all of the best things and your kids can still grow up to be. That is 100% fair. But another thing that I got out of that is that abuse does not have to be physical violence. Like there are some stories where people are describing really, really awful, manipulative behavior that coercive, coercive that they do on their spouse or their spouse did on them that everyone underneath that post is just like, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? That it really highlights that, yeah, like it, you don't have to be in a physically abusive relationship to be abused. And that is, I don't know if that's probably a very terrible segue, but that is the topic of today's episode. And as the topic suggests, the topic of the episode is going to be a little bit heavy. Uh, we'll be talking about some sensitive topics. And if you feel uncomfortable at any time, don't hesitate to pause. We will always be here ready for you whenever you are ready. Yeah. And we can also, in the show notes below, we can provide some links to resources if you need to reach out to anybody, get support, talk to somebody. If anything in this episode causes you any kind of trauma or stress, or just this makes you think that maybe, hey, you need to reach out to somebody about something going on in your life. I also want to say we recognize that people of all genders can be victims, and this can happen in heterosexual and non-heterosexual relationships. But throughout this episode, we're going to commonly be referring to a scenario where a woman is the victim of a male partner, because that tends to be the most common form. Although, again, we recognize that people of all genders and identities can be victims of violence. Yes. Uh, and October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. We are a tad bit late, but you know, better now than never. In addition, the week of October 17th, which is next week, is the Week of Actions. We have all the links and resources in the episode description below. Feel free to check that out. But we are going to do our part as a public health podcast to sort of bring awareness to a very important 
public health issue. Thankfully, none of us are expert on this, but thankfully, today we are joined by an expert on this topic. My name is April Zioli, and I am an associate professor at the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan State University. And my background is in intimate partner homicide and firearm laws, so mainly homicide prevention and the intersection of firearms and domestic violence. So excited to have Dr. Zioli on the show with us today. Dr. Zioli graduated from the same PhD program I did, although a few years earlier. She was also mentored by Dr. Daniel Webster, and she is not just an expert in domestic and intimate partner violence, but also the intersection with firearms. She's a member of the Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the School of Public Health at the University of Michigan. So super excited to have her with us today. Yes, we will start this discussion with a point that I brought up earlier, which is like not all abuse is physical abuse. Intimate partner violence is a pattern of behaviors that one partner uses to control the others. And those behaviors you know, could include physical violence, sexual violence, which are what most everybody thinks about. But it also includes financial control, using kids against the other partner. It includes isolation, humiliation, emotional abuse, psychological abuse. Dovetailing with financial abuse or part of financial abuse, you know, might be sabotaging your career or your school. So if you're in school, you know, maybe needing you at home or or work, needing you at home, making you miss days so that your job or your school are threatened, are compromised. You may lose your job. You may fail that class. Or cases where an abuser sabotages the car so you can't get to where you want to go. And harming your pets, killing your pets, it's a thing. It's a terrible thing. And it happens more frequently than anyone would like. And this is one of the reasons that it can be hard for people to leave, actually, if they don't have a shelter, a domestic violence shelter, or an apartment or a hotel or place that they can bring the pet to keep the pet safe. They're faced with leaving the pet and knowing that something might happen to the pet or giving the pet up or it includes a lot of different tactics. It is not just physical violence. And sometimes the physical violence is what we would think of as infrequent. I didn't even think about like financial abuse as a thing. Like, but of course it is a thing. Like it's totally a method to manipulate people to restrict someone's access to their, you know, resources. And, you know, just to bring this up, there was a period of time not that long ago, like only a few decades ago, where wives cannot get any credit card or own any property without like their husband or a male partner's signature. Like it must be even worse back then to have institutions that's built on limiting a woman's like mobility in, in society. I couldn't even imagine <laughs> yeah. not being able to have that kind of independence. But if you think about some of the core things that happen when an abusive partner is exercising control over their partner, one of those core pieces is isolation. How do you isolate this person and keep control over them? And one of the ways to do that is to restrict them financially. Yes. It limits their physical mobility, their social and emotional mobility, because it can restrict a whole range of things that people otherwise would take for granted as being able to do. And it's such an important point to raise that, again, just to reiterate, 
Not all abuse is physical. There are lots of ways that people can control, coerce, and manipulate individuals in a relationship. Yeah, emotionally as well. And you mentioned this thing about isolation, that communication, like do they cut off their partner's communication with other people? That's also a very common tactic. No, that's a weird way to put it. That's also a a trend. No, I think a common tactic was maybe a better thing than trend. More appropriate. (laughs) Um, Yeah, like isolating someone's communication. Obviously, we knew this to be an issue. And there are some laws in place regarding this. But I think there's a huge hole in how our legal system handled this because since abuse is not always physical, the legal system aren't the best at recognizing when actual abuse is happening. It certainly does make it harder to hold people accountable for abuse if we're focusing on an incident of physical violence, for example, instead of this whole constellation of behaviors that is horribly abusive and really psychologically affecting the person who's being victimized. And how we see that play out often is that, you know, some people who are being victimized don't really feel like they can call the police. You know, what has happened to them hasn't been physical. There are no bruises. There are no broken bones. But they are being controlled and they are being abused. So it really kind of teaches people not to reach out for help in that way. And not including that, you know, not perceiving intimate partner violence as this whole constellation of events really seems to trivialize what a lot of people who are being victimized go through. So this is, I think, the crux of the issue, right? It's a very public health issue. Like we can't do anything until something terrible happens first and then we can do something. Well, and this comes into play when we think about victim blaming and the immense power that victim blaming has in stifling women from coming forward or help seeking because on one hand, the legal system, the police even might say to a woman, well, has anything happened yet? Yada, yada. And we'll know it's, it hasn't gotten to the point of physical abuse. Okay, well, maybe there's not much that they can do or want to do. But then if something does happen, it's like, well, why did you stay with that person? Mm-hmm. Well, I was so restricted financially, socially, emotionally, Physically, that, yeah. that you couldn't leave. And so it's like, well, you it's nothing bad has happened to you yet. So why are you complaining? And then cycle around to this terrible thing happened. Why did you stay for as long as you did? Right. And it sort of becomes the cycle where you can't win women or victims of, of any gender might feel less empowered to be able to reach out. Yeah, this is a perfect segue. Now, we're all about busting some myths and misconceptions on this show. And there are tons of misconception about how intimate partner violence work. And this is a big part of awareness too, right? To shed light on what the reality is rather than what people think the reality is. So let's bust some myth. All right. So a common myth is something I had just alluded to, but April can explain this much better than I did. Mm -hmm. Um, So a common myth or question is, why don't they leave? So a lot of people ask that question, you know, why didn't she just leave? If someone hit me, I'd leave them immediately. And first, I want to address the myth that people don't leave. They do. People who are being victimized leave all the time. And there's a statistic that I've heard for years that it takes a woman seven tries at leaving before she leaves for good. I have tried, I have tried for a very long time 
to find where that statistic is from. And I tracked it back, you know, like looking back through citations and the paper that it seems to start at, it's in a law review journal and it's a judge that made this statement. So I don't think there's any empirical research behind that statement, at least if there is, I have never found it. And believe me, I have looked. So I don't know that that's true. I suspect it probably isn't. So then you get, you know, why does it take so long to leave? Why do people get firmly entrenched in these violent relationships without leaving? Because everybody wants to think that they would leave after the very first physically violent event, at least. People think in terms of the physical violence. And people stay after, you know, physical violence or being demeaned or, you know, whatever form the violence takes for numerous reasons. But often, most importantly, it's because they actually love their partner. You know, they really do love that person. And I am perfectly fine going on record saying that if my husband hit me tomorrow, I would not immediately leave. I would try to work it out. I would hope that never happened again. I would, you know, use resources, but I wouldn't immediately leave. I think it's something that we have to emphasize a lot is that humans and emotions are very complicated things, right? It's very easy for us to like step outside of it and just like rationally think about something, but love is complicated. Well, and how often do we talk on this podcast about expecting people to make rational choices in an irrational situation? Yeah, exactly. Another important consideration about, you know, why women do or don't leave or when they do leave is the risk of violence when women do decide to leave an abusive male partner, for example. That can actually be among the most dangerous and most lethal times in a relationship. Now, so many people want to stay, they love their partner, they just want the violence to stop. And they work to stop the violence in ways that seem appropriate to them. It doesn't always work, obviously. The violence often continues. But there are other reasons that people don't immediately leave. And some of those are economic, particularly if there's been financial abuse. You may not have anywhere to go because you don't have the money. And if there are kids involved, you're going to need money to, to feed them, to house them, to keep them safe. So it could be economic. It could be that you don't want to leave because of shared children. You know, this is your children's other parent. Threats also occur. And if you have been abused by someone, you have learned that their threats are not empty. And often they've committed violence that is egregious, you know, whether it be physical, sexual, psychological, and there's fear. And when your abusive partner says, you know, if you leave, if you take my kids, I will find you and I will kill you. You will believe them because they have taught you that their threats are not empty, that they will follow through. You know, so that is another reason. It may seem counterintuitive, but some people don't leave because staying is the safer option, at least in that short term. We can look at something and say, oh, you should be doing this. But if you're in that moment, whether it's dealing with food insecurity, housing instability, domestic violence, whatever it could be, it can be very challenging when you are the one in that moment to think. Think about this in a rational way when there are so many things at play. Yeah, love is a very complicated thing. And this is a very well-established situation where 
people genuinely feel like this is maybe this is a one-time thing. Maybe he's just very stressed out right now. There are lots of ways that we will rationalize someone else's behavior, especially someone that we genuinely care about. That it is not reasonable to say, you know, why didn't you leave? Right, which is one of the biggest misconceptions. And again, like what Dr. Zioli said, they do try to leave. So I don't know that I've shared this. So I think I've talked previously on the podcast that my mom has bipolar disorder and has had suffered from some mental health issues. I don't know that I've talked previously about sort of the physical violence that happened in my house as a result of that bipolar disorder. And so there were times when I was growing up where there would be violence in the home because of how my mother was feeling, sort of being either end of the spectrum. And that caused a lot of stress and issues in our house. But my dad stayed with my mom probably longer than he should have because it wasn't an all the time thing. And it was related to a mental health issue and also concerns around being seen as a victim of abuse from a female partner and sort of being right. perceived yeah. as weak or, or something like that. So there's a lot that comes into this. It's very tangled. And I just want people to know whether you're in that kind of relationship. People recognize how hard that is. And if you've never been in that kind of situation, it's an immensely complicated and challenging yeah. piece. And it's not just a simple stay or go mm-hmm. question. Although in some instances, when there's extreme levels of violence, like we do need to try to provide people the supports to get them out, at least in the short term, so that those issues can be addressed. Yeah. And there's a lot of cultural forces at play as well. Like you mentioned about how men tend not to report domestic violence. And that, although culture has changed, that is still true today. Like we do get underreporting, especially from male victims of domestic violence. Another common myth or question that crops up all the time is why don't they call the police, right? And we sort of addressed this already, but our legal system isn't really set up to deal with IPV and or intimate partner violence and domestic violence effectively. You know, some people do call the police with the hope that that will make the violence stop. And sometimes it does. You know, it doesn't always. But there are people who don't want to call the police and and don't want to involve the criminal justice system. And, you know, that may be because... They think abuse is a private matter. I mean, we, we are still taught in this culture that it's a private matter, though we are changing you know, culturally on that front, thankfully. They might, as I said earlier, they might think the abuse is too trivial to report. You know, all he did was hit me. You know, and I don't mean to say that in a minimizing way. It's absolutely not minimal. They may be scared of what the abuser will do if they report him to the police. And they may have experienced negative outcomes from previously reporting to the police. So racism, sexism, heterosexism, police not believing them, police arresting the victim. They may have experienced some of these things or, you know, know people who have experienced some of these things and they don't want to have it happen. Or, you know, maybe they previously reported and nothing happened. Nothing changed. The abuser didn't stop abusing. There was no charge. They see no point in reporting again. And if you think about this kind of system that Dr. Zioli is talking about, where you call the police for help and then everyone gets arrested. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Like, what does that do to the victim and the likelihood they might call again? Another thing um, that we have maybe 
briefly mentioned, but I don't know that we've touched on it directly, is that in some instances, the abusive partner might be the sole breadwinner for the house. Yes. So if the abusive partner is arrested when somebody calls the police, then that may negatively impact the economic and sort of well-being stability of a household. And so there's a lot of things coming into play. Yeah. Financial leverage, I guess. Like if one side clearly has the financial leverage, that makes things even more complicated. And also, let's say let's say you call the police and everyone is arrested, whatever. Let's say that because there's not enough abuse according to the legal system that everybody walks do you really think the abuser is not going to retaliate that you call the police like think about that just that if calling the police is more of a gamble than people make it out to be especially in cases like this that perhaps sometimes you do the math in your head and it's just not worth it to cross that line in america Intimate partner violence and domestic violence has the added layer of widespread access to guns. We talked about ERPOs before, uh, which is a great tool. Extreme risk protection orders. Correct, uh, which is a great tool of giving law enforcement at least some tool to intervene without any very obvious cause. You probably explained this better. (laughs) Building off of a point that was made earlier that usually in order for the criminal legal system to respond, there has to have something has to have happened. An event. Right. But ERPO, extremist protection orders, are a proactive tool. They pull together evidence. It's not just, you know, people's thoughts, feelings, etc. There has to be some credible evidence that individuals are behaving in a risky or dangerous manner, threatening to harm themselves, threatening to harm someone else, postings on social media, you know, buying lots of guns and and behaving in a reckless manner before something has happened. These are a proactive as opposed to a reactive tool. And so we've seen these used in the context of intimate partner violence and domestic violence when states don't have strong laws to disarm people who have been abusive, or maybe there are threats of violence and no actual violence has happened yet. And sort of in the interim of a domestic violence protective order, you can get an ERPO and they can also be used in conjunction. They aren't necessarily only a substitute. And we've talked about them also in the context of mass shootings and other pieces when we had Dr. Shannon Frateroli on. And so these are a really good tool as you sort of teed them up that we don't have to necessarily wait for something to happen. Yeah. So I was going to ask, because you worked in this space of gun space, like how has has your research intersected with the introvert partner violence space? So I actually have a grant right now working with April. I think I've mentioned previously, I have one of the first cooperative agreements with the CDC specifically focused on gun policy. They funded other projects looking at violence and those kinds of things, but a cooperative agreement is different because it's not just research dollars, it's actually resources and partnership with CDC. Okay, interesting. And the gun policy piece, the the gun control piece is the thing that has always made everybody twitchy. Um, And so the fact that they have a cooperative agreement specifically on um, this is really exciting. Yeah. So that's great. So now back to the relevant point that you asked about. (laughs) So our proposal is looking at the impact of a particular policy on multiple forms of violence. And so we we looked we are looking at youth homicide and suicide but we also wanted to pull in the intimate partner violence and intimate partner homicide piece and so we have a subcontract to April and her team Yay. to work with us on some of that so that that's most of the intersection i i haven't worked as much in this topic although it's such an important topic and i'm really excited to be collaborating with April on this nice <laughs> Uh, collaboration is what we love to see in research. And I will say that what I'm really excited about is, you know, we talked 
you had sort of alluded to the presence of firearms or so easy access to firearms being a concern or a consideration. When an abusive partner has access to a firearm, the risk of homicide of that victim is as much as five times higher. So it's a really significant issue. So the presence of firearm, like you said, can really change this situation, this scenario. There is a case I'm aware of where the woman was going to leave and she was going to take her son with her and like ready to leave, suitcases packed at the front door. And the abuser pulled a gun and said that he would shoot her son if she left. And so she stayed and she stayed for a long time after that. She did eventually get away, but we might think, well, staying with this person who threatened to kill your son is not rational. But for her in that moment, it was an incredibly rational choice to save her son's life. This, I think, further emphasized the point that it's not fair to say just leave because what are you going to do in that situation if your abuser pulls out a gun and said he's going to kill your kid? Like, are you going to leave? No, like it's not fair. I couldn't imagine. Like none of us could imagine, I guess. Yeah, that's an an impossible situation. And again, we are expecting people to behave rationally in an irrational and unimaginable situation. I could not even begin to put myself in someone's shoes in that way. And it's unfortunate. Easy firearm access and the harms that it does to our communities is a problem. Intimate partner and domestic violence is a huge problem. It's damaging families, communities, etc. And you bring those two things together and you have people who are violent having access to exceptionally lethal means and the threats and the harm that they can carry out as a result is really troubling. Yeah. So I think the takeaway is one, it's not fair to say people should just leave and asking people, why don't you leave is not a helpful nor a considerate question to ask. And second takeaway for us is that there are a lot of legal gaps that needs to be filled because like Dr. Zioli said, a lot of abuse should really be pattern-based recognition rather than event-based recognition. And so far, our legal system hasn't really caught up to that. Lastly, it won't be an everything is public health episode if we don't talk about why this is a public health issue. So some stats So intimate partner violence is incredibly common in the United States. And the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey, and this is a representative national survey, suggests that one in four women in the U.S. has experienced some type of violence from their partners. And one in four women is 30 million women in the United States right now that have experienced some form of intimate partner violence. It's less common for men to be victimized. The same survey found that about one in 10 men experience intimate partner violence. So that's about 12 million men right now in the US. And you know that may surprise some people that men are victims of this as well. They are, they're not as frequently victims as women are, but they do experience intimate partner violence as well. And intimate partner violence has a lot of consequences to it. Of the people who have reported that they've experienced some form of intimate partner violence, many report being fearful, experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, so hyperarousal or flashbacks, things of that nature. 12.4% of women in the United States have been injured, physically injured by their intimate partner. And that's about 15 million women. So the consequences are pretty severe. It shocks me how common it is. I guess I'm fortunate enough to not be a victim 
of domestic violence、uh, nor know anyone personally, or at least I don't think. But this is a very, very common issue. It is a common issue, and again, when we think about why particular topics fall into the umbrella of public health, it's when it impacts a broad. Swath of the population, and we know that lots of people of all genders can be victimized by their partner、mm-hmm. um, or their parents, other family members. Right? This is not just about people who are intimate partners, but more broadly, domestic violence, sort of fam-、uh, violence within families. And so, this is a really substantial issue, which of course makes it a public health problem. But also, you know, we have. Some tools in our public health toolkit that we know can help us address this issue. Right? We talked about extreme risk protection orders. We talked about other kinds of firearm removal laws based on domestic violence prohibitions. Other kinds of domestic violence protective orders.、Um, so there are resources available for people who are in challenging situations. They might need to reach out for help. Again, check out the show notes for some of those links. Yeah. Dr. Zioli is going to end this、uh, main part of the episode by highlighting some types of behaviors or situations or occurrences that might be indicative of concerns in a relationship or concerns、uh, with a partner. We wanted to share these just in case anyone who's listening resonates with one of these situations. You might want to reach out and talk to somebody and get some help. Yes. The warning signs that I would look out for. And this is by no means a complete and infallible list. Are a lot of jealousy to the point where they don't even really want you speaking to somebody they view as a potential mate for you. I would also look out for, and this may seem super obvious, but someone who makes you feel bad about yourself, or someone who tells you they're the only ones who are going to love you. Someone who tries to control different aspects of your life, and and all of these things are going to start small, right? Somebody isn't going to launch into physical violence and isolation on date number two, but just wanting to control maybe your appearance. This is the dress you should wear. This is the hairstyle you should have. You should never have dyed your hair. So people who want to control you, people who want to isolate you, which may take the form of I just want to spend so much time with you. I want to have you all to myself. I love you so much. I want to have you all to myself, which can sound incredibly flattering at first, right? But it's a big warning sign. So things like that that may seem innocuous at first, but are probably not good indications of where this is going. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything Is Public Health. Remember that October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. See all the resources and links that we have in the episode description below. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen. It helps the show immensely. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail dot com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. Follow us on Twitter at everythingisph or Instagram at everythingispublichealth. You can also find me on Twitter at dr. Krafasi. If you would like to follow today's guest, you can find her on Twitter at April Zioli. More information regarding this episode can be found in the show notes below. Listeners, we have a Patreon page that is also our website. Visit the site for all major updates and bonus material. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can support us on our Patreon page as well. You can find a link in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.